Tonight, I'm dealing with the issue of social justice uh, or critical theory. Um, so my title is Thy Kingdom Come, is social justice the end goal of Christianity? Now, my primary concern is not really even critical theory, though I'll be talking about that at length. Uh, I'm really talking about young evangelicals who have decided to give up on Christian faith altogether. They really wanted to pursue justice in society, biblically-based pursuits of justice, and they found in the end that they needed to leave the church and it corroded their faith and that they no longer could believe. Mm. And so their pursuits for justice led them out of the church. Now, most people would think that people who leave the church are wanting to be immoral. But in fact, it's the opposite is true. It is because they want to be moral that they need to leave the church, that they see the church itself as immoral. No longer are the days of the moral majority. Um, in fact, the notion of moral majority is a stench in young evangelicals' noses. So why? Why has that? How, how does it begin to be a um, pursuit for justice, for the kingdom of God to come, but over time to corrode their belief, uh, to corrode their confidence in the Bible, to corrode their confidence in their fellow believers? How did we get here? So I'm going to address four questions. Brett loves roadmaps, so I'm going to give him one. Uh, and so I'm going to really tackle this talk through four questions that I want to answer or to uh, look at. How did we get here? So that will be uh, a history, a very brief history lesson, a very selective history of the 2000s. Then what is at work here? This is when I will look more analytically at critical theory. Uh, about how it works in theology, how it works in society. Then how does it relate to biblical Christianity? It is the critical theory or the pursuits of social justice. Uh, and so really a comparison of critical theory to biblical forms of justice. What does that look like? And then what is the way forward? How might Christians respond with a faithful biblical witness without uh, for uh, for justice without losing their faith? How can we pursue justice without losing faith? Does the Bible actually give us anything or is it part of the problem? So that's where we're going. So how did we get here? So this is a brief look at the 2000s. Uh, so like I said, it's not a proper history. It's too complex. Um, just highlights to current events uh, that, that this has shaped how young people, particularly young Christians, young evangelicals, view the political and social landscape, how they've been shaped by the 2000s. Now, Getze and Gelman are political scientists who did a study, and they realized that there was a pocket of Democrats. There's a pocket of people born from 1950 to 1958, I'm sorry, 1950 to 1954, that vote predominantly Democrat. <laughs> And so they were trying to figure out why this is. And they started looking at the political situations in these people's past. And they realized they, they came up with a claim that the political events that swirled around people from 14 to 24 years old really shaped their future practices for how they view the world and how they vote. Uh, and so they looked at 1968 predominantly. So uh, they saw that there was so much idealism in the 60s. 
particularly around the uh, mid to late 60s. And so you see uh, the moment of political turmoil. We had the assassination of JFK, uh, the president of the United States, the assassination of his brother, Robert Kennedy. You had campus protests and riots like we saw recently. Um, and then you saw Vietnam War. So people brought out their peace flags, they brought out their joints, and they wanted to, and they took off their shoes and their bras and ran across the fields wanting to get their souls free. Okay. 1960s. They wanted, but they did this because they weren't wanting to be immoral, but they wanted to see just, they wanted to be free from the tyranny around them. Um, <clears throat> they wanted to be free from uh, the military complex of Nixon and capitalism. They wanted to say, can't we just get along? Can't we just have peace? Uh, freedom in how we choose to live our life rather than constantly co-opted by the American system. Uh, and so they really wanted to see justice in all areas of life. Leela described, um, Mark Leela is a political scientist. He's a liberal. Um, he's an agnostic, as far as I know. And he says of the 1960s, oppression was polymorphous. And so resistance had to be too. That was why marching in a demonstration against the Vietnam War in the morning, working at a food co-op in the afternoon, attending a feminist workshop in the evening, and then camping out on the land to get my soul free was all completely coherent. They saw it as a worldview, a framework. There was a longing for justice. And it was at this time that cultural Marxism, um, uh, that Marxism uh, from the Frankfurt School was introduced to universities and campuses. And it was just starting to shape how people thought, particularly about people on the right, the capital R right. So very anti-Nixon, anti-military, anti-capitalism. And so people wanted to be free. And even one person on the very far left, a guy named Herbert Marcuse, had this audacious idea that we need to silence the speech of those who are on the right in order for the left to have its proper voice, for there to be proper freedom, for there to be liberation from oppression. We'll get to him later because we see that happening on campuses today. But that happened in the 60s. What about us today? What has been shaping people's minds in the past two, in the past two decades? And what is going to be shaping the future of politics for years to come? Well, let's take a little walk down memory lane. I start with 9-11. I feel like that was, that was the fissure point where everything started dividing. I experienced this personally. Uh, I came, uh, I'm an American that came up from the American South up to seminary in Vancouver at a school called Regent College. And when 9-11 happened, I went to school and uh, I went and everyone felt solidarity. We went and prayed. But within weeks, you could just feel the division happening among the campus of Christians, feeling that what was the right response to the invasion uh, and that Canadians and Americans felt very differently. I felt very confused about what the right response was because I felt my homeland was hit, but I didn't know what the right response was. And I was being told what the right response was that in Canadian society, America was the oppressor, not the victim. And it was a retaliation by a victim of American uh, exploitation of the world. 
and the rural police. And so that was the first beginning I felt this division that I didn't know was latent underneath in how people were thinking. Well, then, then it got wild, okay? We had economic crash of 2008, where people lost fortunes um, on speculation. You had Obama, the first black president elected in the US of A. You had Tyler Clemente. He was a young man that just went to university. He identified as gay and his roommate uh, used a webcam uh, when Tyler wanted to use the room at night uh, to have his friend over. His, his roommate was uh, wondered if he was gay, so he put a webcam and, and saw him kissing uh, his boyfriend, I guess, or this other young guy, and they would have like watch parties. And Tyler found out about this, shamed him, um, and he jumped off a bridge and died by suicide. And so this really brought to the forefront of bullying of LGBTQ community people. Then you had Trayvon Martin, uh, who was uh, um, a young black man, and he was shot by someone on a community watch, even though this young black man was just visiting his, his father and uh, I think his father's fiance or new wife or something like that, I can't remember exactly. Um, but Trayvon Martin was walking uh, back and this man saw him and shot him. And uh, this man, Zimmerman, uh, was a Hispanic man, but kind of leading the community watch was acquitted by the jury. And that's when Black Lives Matter began um, as a social movement, there were protests. And then only uh, a year later, you had Michael Brown, uh, a young black man who was shot in Ferguson, Missouri by a white police officer. And, uh, and there were the black lives and the, the white police officer was acquitted. And so, so the Black Lives Matter movement grew in protest in riots about the inequality and police brutality of young black people, particularly young black men. Then you have Caitlyn Jenner, that came out as trans, a prominent figure, uh, a, a decorated Olympian in the US and really put on the forefront trans identity as, uh, as a culturally acceptable way of being. Uh, then you had gay marriage that was legalized in the States and in Canada earlier. And so big debates and divisions continue to grow then you had Donald Trump's election and somewhat of a response to what was happening uh, with Obama's administration. But quickly, um, on the heels of his election, you remember women protesting and the beginning of the Me Too movement, uh, in part because Trump was caught on camera and the Hollywood reporter for talking about how he thought about women and what he could do to women um, with, uh, uh, without consequence. And so the Me Too movement um, emerged. Then you had uh, the radical right rising up in Charlottesville where you had uh, neo-Nazis and white supremacists marching on in Charlottesville, Virginia uh, and Trump making a comment that there were, uh, it was a protest over statues and the treatment of statues of Robert E. Lee. And, and, and so Trump had saying that it was equitable, that there were good people on both sides. Maybe you remember all this. Then you had mass shootings from Columbine all the way to Parkland and continuing now. But uh, 
But Parkland was really the beginning of high schoolers becoming activists, anti-gun activists. Uh, they really saw that they were able to, to mobilize and to say, if people aren't listening to the leaders, maybe they'll listen to us because our lives are at risk. Then you had debates over immigration and the wall that, um, that Trump wanted to build to, um, to keep out illegals from Mexico coming into America. And then you had uh, Greta Thunberg. She's a young Swedish girl who, who campaigned all over the world about the environmental crisis. And everyone probably saw her YouTube clip where she is denouncing the UN for not acting and, and how there was no future for her generation. And of course, I gave this talk in uh, February of 2020, and I thought, wow, I'm so tired. I don't know if there can be any more. <laughs> so we had the pandemic. <laughs> we had the pandemic. And within, within a month of the pandemic, uh, we had the brutality against George Floyd in Minneapolis, where he says, I can't breathe. Where, which really was symbolic of the whole moment with coronavirus as well, because it affects the lungs. And it just, so there was all this, um, Black Lives Matter became, was a fairly big, chat. Uh, it had like 30 chapters, but it became ginormous in light of George Floyd and the protests and the burning and the anger that happened in light of George Floyd's murder by a white police officer, Derek Chauvin, um, who was just sentenced. Um, though he's trying to have that reprieved in some way. Well, then there was a, an election in 2020 uh, where, um, where Joe Biden and Donald Trump had an election and there was a call for stop the steal because um, there was a, a, they were saying that the voting was fraudulent, that the final vote, vote count was fraudulent. And then perhaps most recently, we have the, the rumors of Roe v. Wade being overturned and people in the streets and coming and marching before the Supreme Court uh, about this. Who knows what the next two years will bring? But you can imagine how exhausting this is just to go through a blitz. And there's lots of things I haven't mentioned. I mean, I could mention Canada as well. Uh, the SNC Lavalin, the rise of Jordan Peterson, uh, Jordan, Justin Trudeau with, in blackface. Uh, you have um, uh, you have massive amounts of bills being passed, Bill C-16, Bill C-6, uh, and then uh, the Freedom Convoy. So you, we've had lots of political events in just a short period of time. It seems like social chaos. It seems like there's a lot of social injustices. It's polarized workplace is polarized families, is polarized churches, to mask or not to mask, to meet, not to meet, to vaccinate, to not to vaccinate. Uh, we are in a very political divisive culture. What does this mean for those between 14 and 24, particularly 18 going forward? How will they see the world? How will they vote? How will, their, how will this inform how they see not only politics and society, but how will this inform their faith? How has it already informed their faith? Uh, so like the six, 60s, people sense that there's wild injustice. There's social injustice everywhere they turn to the left and to the right and up and down. 
uh, north and south. Now, at the same time uh, that these social events has been going, a lot of people who are university students are learning critical theory, sometimes known as cultural Marxism. And it's become an interpretive grid for how they see. Um, why has it been so popular? I'll talk about it more later in detail, but the primary lens is the oppressor and the oppressed. That there are some who are advantaged and there are people who are disadvantaged. And not just as a state of being, but that it is intentionally so, that it is perpetrated, that it is maintained by the system. And so when the white police officer was acquitted um, in shooting Michael Brown, um, people said, well, obviously, this is a great lens to look as power plays are at work. And so critical theory makes sense of world events happening around mm -hmm. us happening around young evangelicals. <clears throat> so young Christians asked and wondered, how can my faith play a part? Because the world's in chaos. I want to be just. I want to see justice done. I want to see the kingdom of God come. So how can I participate in the world? Um, we had one, two students actually, but uh, two students that came from St. Louis, uh, not too long after uh, Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, which is just outside of St. Louis or, um, uh, yeah, somewhat a part of St. Louis. And they were so irate, irate that their church did not show up to protest this shooting and this acquittal. Now, bear in mind, it's complicated, but nothing, nothing. They didn't see their church do anything. And so they became disillusioned, not just with American democracy and the American dream, but with Christianity, with the church, particularly the traditional church. And so a lot of people saw this as like a conversion moment, uh, this becoming woke, woke of seeing uh, oppression, particularly racial injustice in America, but seeing patterns of oppression all around, that there were structural injustices. And they saw that churches themselves not only ignored it, but played a role in that oppression. Ignoring it caused the oppression, but also even seeing that they played a part. Traditional Christians remain sitting on their hands in their pews, having their big churches and doing nothing in the streets and not standing uh, in the fight against injustice. In mega churches, they seemed that they were just as much a part of a problem of consumerism, materialism, and personal fulfillment while the world around them burned. So there was no justice in society from Christians. And so it created suspicion and skepticism of Christianity. Even Christians questioning their own faith and their own belief. But there seemed to be a ray of hope, a ray of hope um, they, those who didn't abandon faith altogether at that moment saw an alternative, a possible alternative. Uh, there was a heritage planted in Christian theology in the 60s. You remember when I said cultural Marxism made its way into the universities in the 60s from something called the Frankfurt School? Well, it was also making its way into uh, um, theology, particularly something called liberation theology. Now, this was primarily a Roman Catholic movement. Uh, and you had Gustavo Guterres, who was um, the main proponent or the big writer for it, a theology of liberation. But it also made its way into Protestantism. 
Um, Jose Miguez Bonino wrote Doing Theology in a Revolutionary Situation. Now, this was an interpretive lens of how they should be as Christians in the midst of political turmoil in Latin and South America. Uh, and so this lens was liberation theology is like, we don't need help from the West. We don't need help from Rome because they don't know the experience of our plight. We can't have someone way over there in, the, in Europe trying to tell us how to live our life in the midst of our political turmoil. And so we need to, um, to bandy, band together and to fight for liberation because that is the biblical way forward. Because they saw that this um, uh, cultural Marxist lens of looking at scripture opened the way for them to fight against injustices and fight for it in a way that God um, wanted them to. It called for an overthrow of the powerful for a redistribution of wealth and a redistribution of power. So this has come into the mainline uh, theology decades later. It has, it has merged and filtered in throughout all of theology throughout the world. So traditional churches spoke of forgiveness of sins and tithing, but not forgiveness of debts. Liberation theology gave young evangelicals a new lens to read the Bible differently and to hope that they could use it in order to, to um, address the, the ills of society in the 2000s. Uh, the key event for liberation theology, so I, I want to look at how, how do they look at, how does liberation theology, or how, how does looking at the Bible through a car, cultural Marxist lens help us read the Bible differently? Um, the primary uh, theme is liberation, particularly the Exodus. The Exodus is a very strong uh, image because it is the liberation of God's people from slavery. And so anything that, um, and so it was a political movement. God, uh, Moses led a political movement, let my people go um, so that they may worship God away from unjust structures and they were let go. Um, but the idea of liberation leaps out on every page of the Bible if you start looking at it. Do not oppress the foreigner. Welcome foreigner into Israel. This God said to Israel, this land is not your land. This is the land I gave you. You were foreigners, and I gave you this land, so welcome the foreigner. Forgive financial debts. Every seven years, you were supposed to forgive people's financial debts. And if you were six years and six months in, and someone wanted to ask you for, to borrow money, you weren't supposed to begrudge or withhold because you know within six months they won't have to pay you back. The law of God was requiring for us to give um, and to relieve debts and to return people to their land. The Sabbath laws. The Sabbath laws was not just about personal rest as important as that is, but rest for lands, rest for servants, rest for foreigners in the land. Uh, there's people who come here and who have become disillusioned with the church because they do not seem to care about the environment whatsoever. And I love to turn them to Leviticus because no one's ever read Leviticus. And I'm like, look at Leviticus. And if you look at Leviticus, you see that God has lots of land laws and land ethics on how they were to use the land. And if they did not use it faithfully, then the land would vomit them out. 
that the if they turn from God, ignored the Sabbath rest, that the that the that the sky would turn to iron and the land to bronze. And if you look at the end of Second Chronicles, the reason that they had their exile is given to you at the very end of Chronicles, so that the land might receive its rest. So it was better that foreigners came in and oppressed you and occupied you just so that land could have rest, is what God was saying. The prophets preached against idolatry, but what was the number one result of idolatry in the prophets? The oppression of the poor. When Jesus came and he proclaimed the kingdom of God, he didn't seem overly vexed about sinners, the immoral people. In fact, when he preached, he was most angry at the religious leaders. Uh, I think I was just talking with Kenji about watching a, a film that came out in the late 60s by a Marxist, um, the gospel according to Matthew. And he quotes, he quotes strictly from the Bible. It's black and white. And, uh, but you can see his atheist Marxist uh, influence on, on it, on what he includes, what he doesn't include. But Jesus looks very much like a, a revolutionary uh, against the, the political elites and the religious elites. But there is truth to it. In the New Testament, Paul didn't just preach and write letters. He also organized groups to make sure the widows were fed. Uh, and that the um, and that the Greek Jewish women were being fed and cared for. He wrote a lot about um, how we were to care for our family and also for those who are outside. James said that the true religion is to look after widows and orphans. So there's lots of examples. If you start looking at the Bible with this new lens, this interpretive grid, that the Bible becomes fresh, full, a way forward to address the social ills of society. Uh, reading it from the perspective of the marginalized is important. One conservative seminarian uh, said this on a tweet. The Bible is written from the lens of the marginalized. If you come from a group or community that is historically not marginalized, you need these voices and perspectives or else your understanding of the word, the gospel and the Christian life will be thin and weak. I agree. I absolutely agree. We need to learn to be able to read the Bible through the lens of others. I mean, when I came to seminary, I learned that I needed to read more parts of the Bible. I didn't even read all the Bible. It's like, oh, actually, I should read the minor prophets, huh? Wow. <laughs> I thought justification by faith was all there was. And then the minor prophets threw me for a loop. But how I, but uh, since seminary and in Labrie, it's called, often asked me, what does this, how would a skeptic read this text? How would a woman read this text? How would a black man read this text? How would a gay person read this text? How would the persecuted read this text? Rather than just simply reaffirming what I already think, my life remains free in the status quo never thinking that maybe the Bible's challenging me. I'll give an example of that in just a minute. But what I began to learn challenged me, convicted me. 
that God wants to speak to all people in all times and all places. But we need to learn how to exegete that, how to interpret it for, uh, for our understanding, but also for our action. But there was an important shift that happened. As helpful as this interpretive grid was and open up so much is that critical theory was not only a helpful lens to bring out issues of justice in the Bible, but it became the interpretive key. It was the foundation. Now, critical theory, cultural Marxism is a secular ideology. Um, but it had become believed in order to understand the Bible, we need critical theory. We cannot understand divine revelation without critical theory. So you see with Union Seminary, a liberal uh, seminary, in their mission statement, which apparently they like to tweet. <laughs> but you see their view on scripture. While divinely inspired, we deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. We affirm that biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages are, are God's. It says that it was written by men and thus. Did you catch that? Being written by men reveals that it was already coming from a place of privilege, oppressive, oppressive of other voices. And so critical theory is necessary to discern what is really true behind the prejudice and the oppressive voices of those who wrote the text. So out of liberation theology came feminist theology, black theology, and gay theology as a lens. To be read from womanness, blackness, gayness, on becoming the interpretive key to know the true meaning of scripture. Mark Sayers, uh, on a podcast called This Cultural Moment, said that when young evangelicals took on critical theory as the interpretive lens, they found themselves getting on a train that stopped at stations they did not know it would go to. You get on a train wanting justice, but in the end, you give up church in the Bible. So people have begun to give up on the church and Christian faith. Uh, one regent professor who came to Labrie and lectured, uh, he scolded me afterwards. Uh, he scolded me because one, he said, uh, because he thought Bowen Island was a place of privilege. And he said, Labrie is not true Christian ministry. And I said, why is that? He said, because you're not with the poor. Uh, and I said, well, what about the poor in spirit? He said, no, God wants you to be with the poor. Uh, now, this, this man I have high respect for, and he taught me a lot, and, uh, and he is a person who he walks the, um, he walks the walk and talks, no, he talks the talk and walks the walk. He opens his house and welcomes people in. He helps people who are homeless. He advocates for First Nations. In um, particular, there was, uh, you remember Frank Paul, um, who was uh, kicked out of the prison and in the freezing cold? and he froze to death. Uh, and so he's advocating for that. And now that was a complex case. The funny thing is that he came and lectured and that was one of his examples, but the guy who was the judge or the, the lawyer for the police was in the room. Wow. <laughs> so that created a little That's conflict. 
And as a very young Labrie worker, I was so excited, <laughs> not realizing it was chaos and I needed to, I needed to bring it in, but uh, I just, I was kept stoking it. <laughs> but, you know, sadly, this man has left the seminary. He's left church. We went to the same church, a church that was for many justice issues, refugees, um, uh, homelessness, and more. Um, but he's he's abandoned it. I don't know what he thinks about Christianity now. Uh, I imagine he hasn't given it up. I hope he hasn't given it up. But he doesn't see that the church has a place in fighting just causes. <clears throat> and young evangelicals have followed. Young evangelicals have followed, have done the same. Especially when 80% of white evangelicals in the U.S. voted for Trump. That, for them, was the last straw. They felt Trump represents all that is powerful and corrupt. And if that's where the church is, that's where I am not. And so uh, James K. Smith has seen this shift in Christians, of people taking on this and then losing their faith. And he attended a, a Jesuit seminary and looked at, um, and he was there when they rolled out their mission statement. But this is what he had to say of their mission statement, Jesuit. Did I say that clearly? Um, well, I'm just joking. There's a couple of Jesuit fan fans here. <laughs> Many good things about the Jesuits. But this particular seminary, uh, this is what James Smith said. Long talk on justice, diversity, and service the word God nowhere appears in the document. Jesus never makes an appearance in the mission of this Jesuit university. In strange and unintended ways, the pursuit of justice, shalom, and a holistic gospel can have its own secularizing effect. What begins as a gospel-motivated concern for justice can turn into a naturalized fixation on justice in which God never appears. So what's at work here? What's, 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 what is critical theory? How does it work? How does it, um, uh, how is this interpretive key exposing these things and why is it leading people away from faith? So <clears throat> I'm not an expert. Uh, this is just a briefest of sketches, uh, almost an introduction of vocabulary words and how they function but just a brief idea of how it understands justice issues uh, before I turn to look at how does it compare with biblical um, ideas and, and biblical forms of justice before we think of a way forward. And I uh, hope you see that in some ways I'm quite sympathetic, but not all the way, okay? So there's three basic elements at work in critical theory. Hierarchy of the strong, critical consciousness, and liberation from oppressive structures. I'll explain each of these in turn. So to put it theologically, it does not start with creation. It starts with the fall. Critical th theory starts with oppression, with the fall. Well, let's see what I have. Systems in society are flawed because there's an imbalance and, and a consequent abuse of power. These power structures are hierarchical. 
They advantage those in power in order to disadvantage those who do not have power. Um, so these hierarchies are not a result of good leadership or of merit. It's because of something corrupt within the system. So there's a line that you see. I have this picture of the oppressor on top, the oppressed on the bottom, and there's a dotted line in between. That dotted line is what binds relationships. And that line is power. It is power. Who's got the power is the question. And this is true of all people. The power that is used to maintain these structures is called hegemonic power. H-E-G-E-M-O-N-I-C, hegemonic power. So hegemonic power are, uh, let me describe it in this way without giving you a definition, is, is trying to maintain those who have the power through the structures. So maybe that's an introduction of policies that gives advantages to some and disadvantages to others. Maybe it's just attitudes of people who will favor one over the other by the color of their skin, by their gender. And we can't deny that this exists. Consider the power and the loopholes by corporate, um, that corporations use who want to increase their power and increase their profit. And they have plenty of money and the ability to manipulate law in their favor. So a person who wants to stand against Monsanto doesn't have a chance. We may point to Jim Crow laws that were in place until the 60s, that were even in place in the 60s. Or women who claimed if they dared sexual assault in the 70s and 80s, who would not be believed. So, so that's hegemonic power, these structural injustices that are in place through policy and attitude. So one needs to know where one fits in this paradigm. This is called critical consciousness. Okay, there's the hierarchy of the strong. This is called critical consciousness. Uh, and that means critical consciousness is becoming aware of the structures and where you fit in it, the unjust structures and where you fit in it. Uh, it's true for the oppressor and the oppressed. So consider an African-American boy who wants to succeed in the world. He's taught that if he studies hard enough, tries hard enough, then the world can be at his feet. But perhaps he's unaware of the endemic poverty that has hovered over his family for generations unaware that he can only attend certain schools depending on where he lives, unaware of the circumstances of the water and of the buildings that have occurred through redlining, unaware that police will have higher suspicion because of the color of his skin and on where he lives. So in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, shows how young black men will face longer sentences for the same crime that a young white man might commit. The child may not even know that he's oppressed, that structural evils are stacked against him. That's called internal oppression. So he needs to become critically conscious or particularly woke in America to what is really true about his social situation. So here are some categories that we might find ourselves in. If you are white, male, straight, cisgender, fertile, and or rich, you are a part of the oppressor class. This is not whether you are a bad or good person. 
You're not just an individual. It's not whether you have intentionally oppressed or discriminated. Rather, your identity is tied to a group that benefits your group in society. That society favors your group over others. And so it's tied to whiteness, maleness, straightness, and so on. If you are gay, trans, or non-binary, female, person of color, poor, and or infertile, you are a part of the oppressed class. Now, this becomes complicated by something called intersectionality. Intersectionality is a more sophisticated attempt, originally a legal attempt. Um, intersectionality is a more sophisticated attempt at evaluating these structural evils, these structural injustices, and how to contend against them. So consider how one African-American woman tried to get a job at General Motors. She applied and she was not hired. And so she claimed discrimination. She filed a suit of discrimination. And GM said, hey, we hire black people, we hire women, no fault. And she said, and so they looked and they said, actually you do, but you hire black men and you hire white women, but you don't hire black women. And so there was a particular discrimination against her, was her claim. And so this shows how intersectionality plays on saying, well, you can try to get around it by playing the structural game, but intersectionality is trying to call it out, trying to call it out and, how, and to work it out. And so this African-American woman would be considered within intersectionality is more oppressed than a white woman or a black man. These categories situate the level of oppression advancing, advantaging you or disadvantaging you. So I'm very privileged within this situation and within the structure, which is true. If you're straight, white, male, you have great benefits, lots of leeway. People will believe you. If you're a straight black male, you have less power, but not more than a straight black female who has even more than a gay black female. See how it works? So how might we respond to this structural injustice, this imbalance and abuse of power? How might we bring about justice? Well, we need liberation from oppressive structures. This is my third point. Liberation from oppressive structures. How do we get liberation? It's complicated, <laughs> very complicated. And if anyone has good answers, I'm going to try to give some humble biblical suggestions at the end. But the oppressed want a seat at the table. They just want to have a seat at the table, but they're not invited in. They're not, they're not allowed to the mahogany tables behind closed doors, if you see what I mean. As I've already said, unjust structures are established and maintained by hegemonic power, and hegemonic power is setting the rules of the game. What's advantaged and what's disadvantaged? Therefore, the whole system needs to be radically altered. As Sensoy and D'Angelo says, dominant groups set the norms by which minoritized groups are judged, or a minoritized group is judged. This means that the oppressor class gets to set the agenda. So the oppressed comes to the oppressor and says, I want justice. 
And the oppressor says, I don't see any injustice. You just got to try harder. Okay. Something like that. And so you're trying to play a game where you didn't set the rules and you have rules set against you. Uh, I'm, I'm about to lengthen this lecture. I'm calling it in the moment, but I want you to, I want you to feel the emotion of this. Uh, and I want you to hear it not from my voice. Okay. And so there was a video that went viral uh, by a, a woman named Kimberly Jones. Uh, so let me turn on the speaker. Okay. Quite emotional. There's some language, but it's the cleaner version than the other version. Okay. And so this is a woman. This is in the height of the protests and the riots after George Floyd was killed by this white police officer. Okay. And so she's responding to why is there protests uh, and looting? And she responds. So I've, I've been saying a lot of things, talking about the people making commentary. Um, interestingly enough, the ones I've noticed that have been making the commentary are wealthy black people making the commentary about we should not be um, rioting, we should not be looting, we should not be tearing up our own communities. And then there's been an argument of the other side of we should be hitting them in the pocket. We should be focusing on the blackout days where we don't spend money. Um, but, you know, I feel like we should do both. And I feel like I support both. And I'll tell you why I support both. I support both because there's, when you have a civil unrest like this, there are three types of people in the streets. There are the protesters, there are the rioters, and there are the looters. The protesters are there because they actually care about what is happening in the community. They want to raise their voices and they are there stripping the protest. You have the rioters who are angry, who are anarchists, who really just want to shit up. And that's what they're going to do regardless. And then you have the looters. And the looters almost exclusively are just there to do that, to loot. Now, people are like, well, what did you gain? Well, what did you get from looting? I think that as long as we're focusing on the what, we're not focusing on the why. And that's my issue with that. As long as we're focusing on what they're doing, we're not focusing on why they're doing. And some people are like, well, those aren't people who are legitimately angry about what's happening. Those are people who just want to get stuff. Okay, well then let's go with that. Let's say that's what it is. Let's ask ourselves why in this country in 2020, the financial gap between poor Blacks and the rest of the world is at such a distance that people feel like their only hope and only opportunity to get some of the things that we flaunt and flash in front of them all the time is to walk through a broken glass window and get it. But they are so hopeless that getting that necklace, getting that TV, getting that change, getting that bed, getting that phone, whatever it is that they're going to get is that in that moment when the riots happen and if they present an opportunity of looting, that's their only opportunity to get it. We need to be questioning that why. Why are people that poor? Why are people that broke? Why are people that that food insecure, that clothing insecure, that they feel like they're only shot, that they are shooting their shot by walking through a broken glass window to get what they need. And then people want to talk about, well, there's plenty of people who pull themselves up out of bootstraps and got it on their own. Why can't they do that? Let me explain to you something about economics in America. And I'm so glad that as a child, I got an opportunity to spend time at PUSH where they taught me this, is that we must never forget that economics was the reason that Black people 
people were brought to this country. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Do you understand that? That's what we came to do. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Now, if I right now, if I right now decided that I wanted to play Monopoly with you, and for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money. I didn't allow you to have anything on the board. I didn't allow for you to have anything. And then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly, and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. That was Tulsa. That was Rosewood. There are those are places where we built Black economic wealth, where we were self-sufficient, where we owned our stores, where we owned our property, and they burned them to the ground. So that's 450 years. So for 400 rounds of Monopoly, you don't get to play at all. Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them, and then you have to turn it over to them. So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play. And every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game. They burn your cards. They burn your monopoly money. And then finally at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. Now at this point, the only way you're going to catch up in the game is if the person shares the wealth, correct? What if every time you share the wealth, then there's psychological warfare against you to say, oh, you're an equal opportunity higher. So if I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, Every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood. How can you win? How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And if the social contract is broken, why the do I give a shit about burning the football hall of fame, about burning the target? You broke the contract. When you killed us in the streets and then give up. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so your target. Your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what Black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. So I know that was intense, emotional, but I wanted you to hear. I wanted you to hear, not just from me. That was sent to me when that came out. And, uh, and these are discussions that I've had in the American South and when I spoke on this in Rochester. 
there are different types of oppressive structures, but she's really dealing with one particular oppressive structure that she, and the, the main reason I show that one is so that you could hear uh, that this is not just a theoretical kind of argument or discussion or call for us um, where we can just kind of dismantle a certain theory and then be happy with ourselves going back to our churches, but rather how are we called to find justices, justice in an oppressive structures or structures that are imbalanced and abusive and have been. <clears throat> well, Herbert Marcuse was one of these figures that I mentioned earlier in the introduction that wrote a piece called Repressive Tolerance in 1965. And he was from the Frankfurt School, which is kind of a school for the beginning of cultural Marxism, that Marxism couldn't just work with a redistribution of wealth. We needed a redistribution of power for redistribution of wealth to work. It can't just be a one thing. It has to be total. Uh, and so he and others um, came to the U.S. and became a part of university settings. And he and what Marcuse says is that we need to have a new language, a new basis for knowledge. That is the way toward justice in society to liberate the oppressed. Liberation theologian, uh, theological groups in Latin America and South America were not wanting to look to the West. They did not want to look to Rome. They felt that those people had already been too compromised by the West and by um, certain ideals. What they didn't want were the facts of the dominant class, but the experience of the oppressed. So that they, they wanted to recalibrate the structures of not just saying, okay, you, you're giving me these facts and the sociological data. Rather, we need the experience of the oppressed to be named and to be voiced. Um, <clears throat> So Marcuse suggests that the oppressed class needs to restrict the voice of the dominant class in order to liberate or to give voice to the oppressed. And so that's what we see on campuses today for a variety of reasons. And so here is Marcuse himself. Uh, I have a couple of quotes from him uh, from Repressive Tolerance. The restoration of freedom of thought may necessitate new and rigid restrictions on teachings and practices in the educational institutions, which by their very methods and concepts serve to enclose the mind within the established universe of discourse and behavior. So let me explain what he's saying so far. He's saying that in order for people to have new ways of thinking and new ways of speaking about the world, in order to overthrow or um, to liberate oppressive structures, uh, we need to be we need to change curriculum in universities because the way curriculum is doing is being done now in the university is is saying that these are the boundaries, enclosing the mind within these boundaries. These are legitimate discussions, and these are not. He says, actually, we need to change all that. Let the oppressed speak. It should be evident by now that the exercise of civil rights by those who don't have them presupposes the withdrawal of civil rights from those who prevent their exercise. So what he's saying is that the dominant class has had power for a long time. They need to be quiet now. They need to be silenced so that the experience and the language of the oppressed might have their voice so that it might recalibrate the system, might recalibrate the university and recalibrate 
and justify society or bring justice to society. So he's wanting to restrict the dominant class, the dominant culture in, in order to liberate the oppressed. Otherwise the oppressed must play by the rules set for them by the dominant class. And you could hear from uh, that woman, um, Kimberly Jones, that that's, that doesn't work. We've tried that. And as soon as we start playing the game well, in Tulsa and Rosewood, I don't know if you know about those cities. Uh, Tulsa was Black Wall Street. And, uh, and then there was riots. Uh, and they even flew planes over and dropped bombs on this area in the US. It's a story that we don't hear about. Um, and Rosewood as well. That there were very direct attacks against Black Americans. <clears throat> so we need to change the way that rules are played. But how is this working now on university campuses? Well, it's, it's really moved into identity politics. And so Mark Leela, who I mentioned earlier, this agnostic liberal, um, he's a classic liberal, uh, says this, <clears throat> this is what's happening with uh, Marcuse's ideas. The more obsessed with personal identity campus liberals become, the less willing they become to engage in reasoned political debate. Speaking as an X is not an anodyne phrase. It tells the listener that I am speaking from a morally privileged position on this matter. One never says, speaking as a gay Asian, I feel incompetent to judge this matter. It sets up a wall against questions, which by definition come from a non-X perspective. So what he's saying there is that a person will just, uh, in order to have a, a seat at the table and to shut down discourse, is that they speak from their identity and that qualifies them as a moral superior position in order to have a voice. He says, but what this does is it sets up a wall against questions, because if you question it, it um, it's oppressive. So Leela continues, it turns the encounter into a power relation. The winner of the argument will be whoever has invoked the morally superior identity and expressed the most outrage at being questioned. So classroom conversations that once might have begun, I think A, and here is my argument, now take the form, speaking as an X, I'm offended that you claim B. Is that true? This makes perfect sense if you believe that identity determines everything. It means that there is no impartial space for dialogue. So what Leela is saying here is that there's, you no longer can question someone's experience. You can't, um, and if you do, it's a microaggression. What he's also saying is that the rules are being reset to prioritize experience um, of the perceived oppressed person over and against Eurocentric white rationality. That the discourse must change. And this has changed around the power of who has the power of language and who has the power of speech. Yet Leela wonders, how can we come to any sense of the common good if we throw out all objectivity and rationality and listening to one another. All it does is set up a new power dynamic that does not equalize the situation. It simply turns the tables 
and causes the oppression to come from elsewhere. The power dynamic and the oppressive structure remains in place, but what it does is it causes the oppressed to become the new oppressor. And so there's a moral asymmetry. The person considered may call out uh, people on Twitter. I think that's what Twitter was created for, to call out people. Uh, but for instance, there are quotes of people who defame old white men, kind of a common trope. But imagine the same tweets that's written defaming or using defamatory statements toward old white men and just take the word old white men out and put Asian women instead. There would be protests, call outs, and a removal from Twitter. So it's okay to define, defame old white men because they've had power and they've had power for long enough. One may use horns, amplifiers, and glitter to cancel a person. Now, canceling happens from the left and from the right. This type of violent action is not even just to control speech. Um, it's also broken out into physical harm. Uh, there was a, a philosopher professor who was um, protesting on behalf of Antifa at a Trump rally and took his bike lock and hit one of the Trump supporters. And he considered it a justified means because um, it was retaliation because it was against the oppressor. That, uh, and so you see what is allowed for the oppressed is not allowed for the oppressor, that there's a moral asymmetry, if you see what I mean. So let me talk about some shortcomings with this. So I've tried to talk about and try to make you feel passion for justice and where critical theory has given us a lens that says we must act and think well about structural injustices in society. But at the same time, it creates a moral asymmetry. So what are some shortcomings of critical theory? I believe that there's two, that it fails to free everyone from oppressive structures and that it fails to create a unified society. So in the first one, instead of righting wrongs and removing oppression, it has simply reversed the roles. A new hierarchy, a new oppressor class. So let me quote Leela again. A strange and depressing development for professors who went to college back in the 1960s, rebelled against the knuckle, the knuckle wrappers and must the school marm's hair. Left identitarians who think of themselves as radical creatures, contesting this and tra transgressing that, have become like buttoned up pro Protestant school marms when it comes to the English language, parsing every conversation for immodest locutions and wrapping the knuckles of those who inadvertently use them. So what he's saying there is, in the 60s, they look like the radical. They must the hair, they mock the system, but now they are the system. In the university, these people who are protesting are now the system, and, uh, and they're wanting to wrap the knuckles over anyone who has misused the language. They haven't used the right words or haven't used the right language or the speech codes. So he says that they just become new oppressors. He also speaks about Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is a textbook example of how not to build solidarity. As soon as you cast an issue, and so this is what he was talking about, um, because he was saying that in Black Lives Matter, they didn't want white people to speak on their behalf. 
because we don't want you to speak for us. You're the oppressor class. We need to speak for ourselves. He says, but that creates a wall. Okay. This is what he said. He said, this is the textbook way of how not to build solidarity is what Leela's talking about. As soon as you cast an issue, quoting him, exclusively in terms of identity, you invite your adversary to do the same. Those who play one race card should be prepared to be trumped by another, as we saw subtly and not so subtly in the 2016 presidential election. And it just gives that adversary an additional excuse to be indifferent to you. What he's saying there is if you play identity politics as Black Lives Matter um, and you don't allow white people to speak, what you're going to see is also you're going to see the rise of radical right. And there's going to be a counter protest. And he says, we saw that. Um, you can see that pun, Tim, you saw that pun. It says trumped by another um, subtly and not so subtly in the 2016 presidential election. He says, if you don't look for solidarity in the conversations and pursuits for justice, and you just use identity politics, then be expected to have identity politics used against you. We need to find a different way. I don't always like Leela's tone, and I don't agree with his final synopsis, but I'm just kind of giving you uh, his critiques of critical theory here. But I also believe that it fails to unify society. Not only it maintains the oppressive structures, but it fails to unify society. So consider this, uh, this a photograph from the um, airport. Uh, it's an HSBC photograph of a bank. Banks are into cultural diversity um, campaigns. And look at the quote, it says, difference is the only, um, the only thing we have in common. Difference, the only thing we have in common. Of course, they fail to recognize that they're all birds except the bat, of course. Bats are not birds. I've learned that. I embarrassingly learned that at the conference I spoke. I gave this talk to like 600 people and they were like, bats are not birds. But the point is made that difference, the only thing we have in common, really? Is it difference that's the only thing we have in common? Difference is emphasized, not our unity, not our common humanity. It cuts against our citizenship. It cuts against our common good. Quoting Leela again. Today, the theoretically adept are likely to be taught to the consternation of older feminists that one cannot generalize about women since their experiences are radically different depending on their race, sexual preference, class, physical abilities, life experiences, and so on. Saying that old feminism was trying to rally women but new modern forms of um, feminism are becoming sectarian about what is a woman and what's a true woman. He's saying that what it does is not only fragments groups against groups, it even fragments the groups from within, and it can even fragment a person internally, that I'm half oppressor, half oppressed. So we see that not only intersectionality or critical theory can divide groups and divide individuals, um, but we have to ask, what is the final goal? What is the final goal of this freedom, of this justice? What does final justice look like? Critical theory as a tool says it's unjust, but what, is the, what does the end goal look like? And what is the plan to get there? What we need is a new kind of freedom. We need to live into a new kind of freedom. 
and as an introduction of how biblical Christianity and critical theory uh, look to one another, how they compare, I'm going to quote Richard Bauckham. And this is how he, um, how I want to start this section. The oppressed who long for freedom are not truly liberated from the system that oppresses them so long as the freedom they desire is only the freedom their oppressors have. Freedom for themselves, no matter what this entails for others. In such circumstances, the struggle for liberation is simply a mirror image of the system it opposes. It becomes ruthless in its self-interest, creates as many victims as it liberates, and produces a new kind of tyranny in place of the old. Outward liberation worthy of the name requires people who have been freed to live for others and for all others, even for their oppressors. That's a hard call, but this is a biblical call. So how does critical theory relate to biblical Christianity? Um, as well as critical theory enables us to see uh, the call for justice in the Bible, it fails to see the whole gospel where oppressor and oppressed come together as one. Um, and so I see three key differences. <clears throat> the first is that reality is not a human construction of power, but God's creation. Reality is not reduced to any earthly power. If human power is central to reality, as according to central um, critical theory, then it will always be a contest of wills. Who has the power? Who doesn't? And it's not, you know, ancient and modern cosmologies always start with conflict. But the Bible starts with no conflict. It's unique in that sense. God brings about his creation through his power, which is by his voice. Um, and so the power of reality belongs to God ultimately. It's beyond human grasp. It can be corrupted by human power, but it can never be contained and held ultimately by human power, even by demonic power. You remember when it said, um, uh, what's in John? It said, um, the light came among them and they could not grasp. Anyone? Okay, we'll just have to pull out a Bible some other time. Do, this is the right audience, the right? The, the darkness could not grasp it. And I like the term grasp it because um, grasp means that they could not understand, but also could not hold. And so, so death could not hold Jesus. So anyway, so the ultimate power belongs to God, not anything within creation, not human power. So it's not a contest of wills. Um, it also provides us a unified field of knowledge. I spoke more at length in this in my epistemology talk, but it's not just about oppressed experience. It's not simply about facts of the dominant culture. It's that we can look for common rules, a common law under God's care. Um, he holds all things together and he judges all things. So we, we look to God in order to understand the relationship to one another, not to, do you have power or do I have power, but who is God above us and how are we to relate under him? 
It's a very different way of viewing reality. And so it means that there's a moral symmetry, not an asymmetry, a symmetry. The oppressor does not stand over God's law. So the church stands under God's rule, under God's judgment. And so God's rule, and I was also say that God's rule is not totalitarian. When we say that God rules over all, it's not totalitarian because God's creation was given the ability to participate voluntarily. Adam and Eve were free to rebel. We are free to rebel against it. We're also free to raise our empty hands and no longer call God a liar. So God's rule creates moral symmetry and also uh, in liberty. But second, the difference is that it is not human superiority or domination, but human equality in the Bible. We are all equal in three ways, in creation, in sin, and in redemption. So first, we're equal in creation. So that means that we have inherent dignity before God. So that means all persons, whether they love God or not, bear God's image and are worthy of dignity and justice. God calls humanity and each person a part of his very good creation, even enemies. Human dignity is presumed by critical theory, but the only basis for human dignity is the biblical basis. But it's not just an idea for Christians. It's supposed to be a lived demonstration. We are to see our enemies as having dignity, whether they are a part of the oppressor class or the oppressed class. This is what truly breaks down the oppressor oppressed class is when we treat all people equally with dignity. We're also equal in sin, that no one is righteous, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. So that means while we have dignity, we have also rebelled against God. And so this is very important. I want you to understand and hear this. The source of oppression is not external in creation, but it is in this rebellion. It does not start externally. It starts internally. And we've all internally, internally rebelled. And when we internally rebel, we create unjust structures. Solzhenitsyn uh, was captured and put in the Russian, uh, in the Gulag Archipelago, Archipelago, sorry. Yes, thank you. Uh, but he was asked about what should we do about your oppressors? Should we kill them? And he had to think about it. And he reflected and saying, I can't kill them because I then become like them. Because ultimately good and evil cut through every human heart. So he saw that this brought moral symmetry. Sin cuts through the heart of the oppressor and sin, good and evil cut through the heart of the oppressed as well. And we're also equal in redemption in our need uh, for Jesus. We're all in our need. Uh, we're all equal in our need to receive forgiveness from Jesus. No one comes with privilege or merit above another before Jesus. Um, there's no privileged place with Jesus. 
God had a special concern for the poor and for the marginalized, as should we, but they too were called to repent. So in the early church, all were called to come together, male and female, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, master and slave, oppressor and oppressed. But instead of maintaining those structures, their unity in Jesus upturned those structures. It liberated oppression. It wasn't just utopian. It was a lived demonstration. Paul wrote to Philemon, who was the master of Onesimus. And Onesimus was a runaway slave for whatever reason. And Onesimus um, comes in and becomes a convert under Paul's ministry and serves Paul. And Paul says, I need to send you back to your master. How is he going to write this letter? Um, And why is Onesimus even willing to go? But Paul writes Philemon and says, I want you to receive him, but no no longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he knows that Philemon has property rights over Onesimus. And he's sending, and he goes, but I'm going to abide by the law and sending him back to you, but I want you to receive him as a dear friend of mine, as a partner in the gospel, and therefore a brother of yours in Christ. So you need to treat him as you should in the flesh and in the Lord. He's calling for moral purity, but also social justice. Um, And so when hearts are renewed, social justice changes. Zacchaeus, when he meets Jesus, he encounters Jesus. He's converted in his heart. Jesus is a guest, and he decides what to do. Pay back debts and to give generously. He gives all his money away. So this internal renewal brings about social justice. It doesn't mean that we should only preach internal renewal, but also social justice, that they should be together. And so Paul saw that there needed to be care for the widows, the Greek widows. Thirdly, is that liberation from oppression is not to come by human power, but God by spirit, the power of the spirit. And so I'll just say one of my favorite quotes by Schaefer, that the greatest threat in the world is not communism, liberalism, modernism, rationalism, let's say critical theory or cultural Marxism, but the church pursuing the kingdom of God or trying to establish this kingdom of God through the power of the flesh and not the power of the spirit. We would look much less like the mega churches and more like radical communities that are caring for our neighbors in, in our own ways. So is there a way forward? So in order to look forward, we need to look back at good old time religion. So evangelicalism has had a bad rap, um, and that's for good reasons. But this is also to misunderstand the history of what evangelicalism has meant for North America, particularly America. That people sought social changes alongside a call for repentance. That repentance went hand in hand with social justice. And so we have, I have four figures up here. Wesley, John and Charles Wesley went and they often preached 
to the person, uh, to the criminal, about to be um, right before he's to be hanged on the gallows. And the people would come and look at this person hang on the gallows. And they would preach about the kingdom of God. They would preach about heaven. They would call for repentance. But at the same time, they called for prison reform. And so they were uh, huge people in calling for prison reform and did have prison reform because they, they really made it their point to preach the gospel around the prisons. Whoops, sorry. You have uh, Wilbur Wilberforce. Uh, he's known for the abolition of slavery as a result of his faith, but not many people know that he also called for the reformation of morals in England. And so he also was a huge advocate for just treatment of animals. He also fought against child labor laws, all as a part of his faith. You also have 19th century evangelical women. They led the charge on feminism and women's suffrage so that women had the vote because of evangelical women. You have Martin Luther King, uh, a Southern Baptist and the civil rights movement. His call for solidarity was that blacks and whites would join together in the civil rights movement, not against one another, but as brothers and sisters in Christ under God. So these are some examples of people who held this call for personal internal repentance and internal renewal and external changes. Uh, there's a woman who works for an interfaith group, and she wrote this article called Evangelical Christians, the First American Liberals. This is right after Trump was elected. So it's pretty bold of her to write this, Georgina Bennett. Um, and she felt that evangelicals had been given too much of a bad rap. And so what she says <clears throat> is confronted with an excess of poverty, alcoholism, illness, inequality, racial tensions, problems faced by immigrants, crime, the evangelical Christian conscience responded with social activism. Many from that community were immersed in the abolition movement, public health measures, the settlement house movement, the establishment of adoption agencies, the temperance movement, improvement of schools, enforced education for the poor, women's suffrage, among others, and ultimately the civil rights movement. Many of these movements in the pursuit of social justice require the intervention of government, and this was, in fact, partly driven by the contribution of evangelical Christianity to progressive social causes. So we as Christians need to consider what, how are we to think, not just about um, of young evangelicals' desire to see justice done in the streets justice done in the courts, justice done in the city. Uh, and a lot of them have looked to the large churches or the traditional churches and they see no justice. They see people who have, who have power sitting on their hands and living out their status quo, rather seeing the radical call that the gospel calls them to. And as a result, they're turning to alternate lens, lens and finding that as a more gospel-oriented motivation than what the church has done. But in doing so, in turning from the church, they've given up faith altogether. Um, and so it's a call for us to consider how might we respond in a way um, toward our society. And so let me end just with this, um, uh, this one verse. 
by in James chapter one, verse 27, because I started religion is to take care of orphans and widows, but consider the, the, the two wings of this in order for it to fly. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What a wonderful balance of trying to seek social balance and a pure heart as we seek God's way in the world. Okay, so let's have a discussion. <clears throat> Hugh. Yes, so the university was um, a white male hegemony. Now it's uh, intersectionality and identity politics. Is the university a failed experiment? Okay, so the question is, is that the university used to be held by white man hegemony or hegemon you said it better hegemony <laughs> oh hegemony uh wasn't that a billy idol song uh, yeah hegemony hegemony oh anyway sorry it was a bad joke uh that the universities used to be uh, uh a hegemony of white male eurocentric rationality but now it's held by intersectionality and by identity politics. Not exclusively, but there's, as you said, there's the current is very strong, right? Now. Okay, those are the current. Predominant, The dominant culture. So does that mean that the university is a failed experiment? Well, I hear a lot of people saying like, why spend $40,000 and send your kid to college when they're just gonna be brainwashed with a bunch of, you know, postmodern. Yeah, so why send them to school? And they're going to come out hating God. And a $40,000 debt would be ideas. just a Canadian yeah. debt. I don't think yeah. that'd be an American debt. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, any American listening to this would be like, really? 40000 where? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a failed experiment any more than it was in the past. I think that there's still hope for it. But uh, I think that there will be change. Uh there, there has been a push for free speech and freedom of thought, freedom of conscience. Um, it isn't happening elsewhere, but it is happening in certain quarters. It's not happening with the elite colleges, but it's happening elsewhere. And in order to have a, um, an approach toward this is the University of Austin. And that Jonathan Haidt, I think, is on the board. Uh, Ayin Hersi Ali, is that how you say her name? Uh, and other prominent figures who are really calling for freedom of speech, freedom of thought, whether it comes from the left or from the right. But let's, let's have um, a discussion again about our differences because that, that's the way forward for our society to be healthy. So I, I, I'm not so pessimistic about universities, but it is a question and a challenge for those who are in the midst of a university where the dominant culture is critical theory. Yeah, I mean, is it currently worth the investment to go to a university? I guess would be is it uh, is it worthy of an investment? I think it can be if you go to the right school. I think some schools you shouldn't waste your money on. It's probably worth the debt to send your kids to a good university. <laughs> yeah. Where'd you go to catch? Who defines that? Who defines a good university? Well, if I was to say what's a good university, 
What's a good university? I would say that uh, if all you're going to get is propaganda, then it's not a healthy one. Whatever that propaganda may be, it could be a Christian school where you only get Christian propaganda and you're not allowed to think uh, about culture and the exchange of ideas. Um, I think that they're really, and so it's not wrong to have a Christian university, but as long as it's not trying to like put so many buffers to indoctrinate is another way of saying it. Uh, And that also comes from the left or even from, uh, or a university that might be very right. It just, it doesn't matter as long as I would say the health of a university is where there's a freedom of exchange of ideas and hearing um, and hearing ideas out um, looking at the history of society and the history of ideas would be important. And I would also say, uh, Jordan Peterson said this recently, um, we need universities that care about virtue again, because the original universities cared about virtue. By the time you graduated throughout the most, throughout the history of the world until most recent times is that education meant that you became a more noble virtuous person that would serve society and for its betterment but isn't virtue is virtue subjective well i mean uh that's a complicated question because uh virtue is not merely subjective i would say that there there we can we can agree now you may not agree that all the things that i consider virtuous but there's a, a lot more commonality in virtue the difficulty is, can we agree on how that virtue works out or not just what virtues there are, what does humility look like? What does generosity look like? Self-control. So I think that there's probably a lot of agreement. Um, Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, how, um, why we divide over religion and politics. And he's an agnostic uh, and a moral psychologist who believes in evolutionary psychology. But his study was really trying to find out what values we hold together, what moral pillars. And he found six, sanctity, loyalty, fairness, and I can't remember the others, but there's six. Um, And it was his attempt at trying to find a common ground. Even if we can't agree about all the common ground, I think that the most basic is Do we have the ability to freely exchange ideas and to to serve one another? If we have those two things, a free exchange of ideas and serve one another, I think that would be a good university student coming out. Regardless of the idea. Regardless. Yeah. I think that ideas have consequences. And I don't think that all ideas are equal. Um, I think that some are helpful and some are hurtful. So, but I would not want to not allow someone to have a bad idea. A bad university is not allowing someone to have a bad idea. No cancel culture. Right. Allow that person to cancel themselves. I think that um, what what we've become in society is where we're not allowing people to listen to nuts. You know, we should allow uh, to allow people who have crazy ideas. Allow people to spout their crazy ideas, I think. Uh, And I think that if we have a culture of civility and common good, those people will weed themselves out. But what we've done is that 
we've created all these pockets in our own private news feeds where crazy ideas can gain ground and support. What's that? Like echo chambers? Echo chambers, yeah, exactly. Where you just hear people who agree with you and, and it can build a whole group where you think, oh, there's enough of us, you know, but, um, but there was more civility and more cross the room chatter and uh, in discourse, I think that, that they would weed themselves out more. And so I think that the more we try to protect it, the worse it gets. It's almost like a parent who tries to, um, I saw this growing up. I went to a Southern Baptist high school uh, as a Presbyterian kid. So I don't know what my parents were thinking, but, uh, but thankfully I wasn't a part of their Southern Baptist culture, but that Southern Baptist culture, what it was, um, was it was trying to bubble wrap them so much helicopter parents, but it's just like, okay, I don't want you to see anything that's unsavory. And I don't want you to hear any idea that's unsavory. And then what happens, they went to university, they got pregnant, they got on drugs, they, uh, um, they dropped out of school, uh, all kinds of stuff, because they weren't allowed to have some freedom early on. And, and I think that university in our, our society is doing the same thing is that we try to make sure we bubble wrap society and try to bubble wrap people that no one might be offended. But what has happened is that it's creating a culture of chaos. I think that we need to allow people to have the dignity in sharing their ideas. And, but yes. Question. Uh, do you see in, in this critical theory framework that you described an analogy for what would be for us the concept of sin? in the sense that they are denouncing all of these evils so energetically, but in the Bible, that is called sin and is denounced as such, but they see the whole Christian thing as part of the problem Yes. and the whole logic as part of the problem, but they seem to see, to see that there's such a thing as sin. So what will be the analogy in their worldview uh, to that concept of how it would work out, like it would, to, what is that that they are calling out and denouncing it's something out there in reality, some evil in this? What, world? yeah, so how does critical theory think of the idea of sin, like, um, uh, especially if they see the church as a part of the, the problem? What does critical theory see as the problem? And um, what do they, what do they denounce? Is that what you're asking? And how will they, how will, how will it make sense in their framework as something that is wrong with the human heart? Like they are seeing that there's something that they are very- My understanding is that they don't see it as a problem with the human heart. There's a problem with external structures. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, that's the key difference. And um, I didn't say it, it's in my notes, but I didn't say it clearly. So I'm glad that you asked. Is that, one second, um, is that, um, I wanna hear. Is that um, Christianity proclaims that an internal renewal causes external change? Critical theory and so much of our politics and social ideas is to have an external change to create an internal renewal. But it doesn't work like that. Just because you get the right person in office, just because you get the right policy, doesn't mean that people's hearts are going to change. Uh, or society is going to just like, oh, okay, um, uh, these policies have been enacted, these laws have been, and so now people are just going to like accept it and 
be socialized into it. Uh, it. It's almost that it's almost cultural conditioning. If we make the external changes, then we may not change, but the future will change. That cultural conditioning will lead them to believe the right things of whatever we decided now, gay marriage, um, uh, gender expression and gender identity as a part of the Human Rights Commission, that if we add this, then it will change the way people think. It will become more acceptable the longer it's presented and, and the laws uh, affirm it, then it will become an internal belief, an internal renewal toward right belief. But, but that thing out there that they want to change and renew, how is it called if not seen? Something? No, so, so it's usually not, uh, I don't see much in the literature of right and wrong, but just and unjust. I would suggest that meanings derived from power in critical theory. Yeah, that so, meaning derived so, from power. Yeah, so you have to have yeah. a meaning hierarchy to make sense of the world. Yeah. And that the only meaning that exists from that non-secular standpoint is power. Yeah. Yes. So so and then and then therefore attainment of power is, is sort of equivalent to righteousness. And that's why it's your within your right if you're oppressed to take the power back however you want. So the original Marxism was over financial. Yes. And then that's moved to cultural. Yes. That's right. So um, and so that's yeah, that's right. Might is right. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah, well, that's meaning. It's, it's yeah. not right. That's meaning. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. Deeper, right. It's it's even that's deeper. Right. That's what meaning of life is. Might is meaning. Yeah. 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 <coughs> yes. I'll let you cough. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, just in listening, the question was answered for you, but I'll post the question with mm. oh, um, the subscribers <laughs> of critical. Theory or mm -hmm. praxis or both. Mm -hmm. What is human nature, or what has become of human nature? Then, and I, uh, I personally, I think it leans more towards power for those. But in your opinion, your experience or reflection, how would um, how would critical theory understand human nature? Yeah, the notion of human nature, like you mentioned, virtue, for example, earlier, and there's a classical tradition that. I don't know, theorizes or conceives of a, this notion of human nature. So yeah, so what becomes of human nature? Yeah, I've not read anything. Uh, <laughs> it's usually understanding the human in the midst of structures or structural evils, mm -hmm. uh, instead of thinking what is the, the original nature of humanity, but what are they in the midst and, and how might they make change? Also, I would say that they would consider dignity and freedom as hallmarks of what it means to be human truly human is that the human has the ability to carve out or construct their meaning uh to have the freedom and the structure should um uh support that so so the cosmic origins of this evil will be irrelevant and a relevant question to us that's right the cosmic sources of yeah of evil would be irrelevant uh as far i mean in, any literature i've ever read it, i've never heard of anything about the introduction of cosmic evil uh it rather starts within a system and how do we get out so sorry 
I don't know if this is a comment or a question or both, but I'm wondering then, it, it seems to be that this version of, um, anyways, it seems to be more of an here and now imminentism versus like a Masonism progress future oriented. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're saying it that critical theory seems much more about the imminent than the future? Yeah, it sounds more sophisticated. It's like, um, whereas like the Marxist kind of uh, version. Of Marxism intended to be more utopian. Yes, versus. Yeah, you know, like, that's probably a very good now. point. I don't know of, uh, of end goal. Right. Now, there was a woman named Paula Edelbrick that wrote, a, um, wrote an article called when did when did gay marriage no when did marriage become the path to liberation question mark when did marriage become right, right. the path to liberation yeah. and she's not talking about um what you might imagine she's talking about why are we trying to legislate gay marriage that's not what we want we don't want to part, become a part of the system so are gay people just trying to get what heterosexual people have how is that how is that liberating what we and and she said it's the thin end of the wedge it's not that gay people this is according to her not mm -hmm. to everyone who would support gay marriage but according to her she said it's not it's it's not trying to get gay people a heterosexual power but rather trying to create a thin end of the wedge to break the whole system apart so that everyone has sexual freedom mm, okay and so the end goal is complete egalitarianism. Everyone, and so, but anarchy, like everyone has a right to choose. It's like a pure nihilism. Well, Can't, yeah. completely self-referential. Like you decide what values are. And then you would have the, so I would argue that they would suggest um, that you couldn't think of a utopia if you're in a minority class because that utopia is being constructed by the hegemon. Um, and therefore, you shouldn't even start on that path to think about it. You're going to have to let that evolve over time once you broke the system. So then the whole goal is to break the system. So just anarchy. Yeah, yeah. It literally, I, I noticed from living in Vancouver, this is exactly <laughs> like something never quite sat right with me. And I think that's what it essentially was. Because it was just always trying to destroy everything. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure everyone heard that. Sorry, I was trying to make it easier for y'all to hear, but it messed up. Because since that mute that mic's muted, yeah, they can only hear your voice through this computer. Okay. I just try to make it easier, but it didn't work. So sorry. I don't remember what I was saying. Sorry. I got a question here. Yes, Kenji. Uh, trails off of what he. Uh, this gentleman said, but I was kind of thinking along the way, the, the, the same lines, like, so you mentioned the, uh, or you showed that slide of this, there's the oppressed, the oppressors and the oppressed and this line between them. Mm -hmm. Is that, uh, in critical theory, is that just the state of societies and how they will always be? Or is there an attempt to change that structure at all? Um, is there is there a utopia that's different than that that is aimed for? I think that the end goal, if there is an end goal, and I truly believe that that it's uh, impossible to break that down ultimately because of the moral asymmetry. But yeah, I mean, I guess there is 
there is the idea that 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 the only way that we won't be oppressor or oppressed is if we have enough structures in place where each of us can do what we want. I think also there's, I don't think they have great endpoints, so that's why they look towards having even group distributions. So that there's equal representation that counts. Yes. Everything at every level, under every transsectional um, yes. categorization. And that, <coughs> not because you think that's what's going to happen, but that's the easiest way to, to look at it. And if you don't see that, that's a sign that there's systemic um, yeah that they want you know the problem with that is um is if you don't have representation if everyone's like a direct vote i mean i've been in so many discussions where everyone has to have a say and has to have a vote mm -hmm. and nothing gets done yes mm -hmm. uh and so what happens is society in its attempt to be just gets to a standstill and so, but does that mean that we just need oppression to get things done? No, um, I think that that might be the retort, but no, there has to. And so what we need is that we need, we need people that we can trust to represent us and that they would represent our needs, even if imperfectly. And having the checks of balances of having uh, set terms. And I think that that was the original idea of Canada and America. Um, or at least America, and then later on Canada. Anyway, so what did you want to say? Um, people that adhere to the critical theory, they want freedom and justice, but they don't have a clue what it is. And it basically what it says in the gospel, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, and then it just devolves into chaos. Yeah. I think that's what the goal is eventually. That the goal is social and, chaos. And someone will step up and take power and control of everything. And you'll see the whole country devolving, like Canada, all these laws they're passing. And um, we're not going to be in good shape in a few years, I don't think. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you're saying that uh, those who purport critical theory um, really, they don't have. No. an idea of what freedom and justice look like and really their end goal is social chaos yeah. and in the vacuum of social chaos uh there will be uh, a person who comes around to rule or, or government or, or, or government rule yeah you know um that's true and that's what happens is social anarchy leads to authoritarianism and totalitarianism for example uh in a day or two all the countries are going to vote on the UN pandemic treaty. And basically what we're going to do is give our sovereignty to the UN to say what a, a pandemic is and how we are to deal with it. We've, we've given it away. So I don't think that's right. We're a sovereign nation and it shouldn't be doing that. Right. So, so yeah, you're venturing into geopolitics. Um, <laughs> it's all what the culture has been crime to do with all these things they all come together and they're mm -hmm. all working towards the same goal critical race or critical theory they believe they got to change all this stuff tear things down rebuild it and it's coming from every angle in society and it's going to be chaos yeah i think that that's partly true um but i don't think that cultural marxism is the thing that we can we can lay the all the ills in the world at the feet of cultural marxism mm -hmm. 
that uh, that Western liberalism has also played a role in in injustices. You know, we're all guilty. We're all yeah. sinners. And unless a person's heart is changed, that's the only way things will change. Right. And I know from my personal life, the change that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Everyone's out there fighting and striving for the cause, but unless they hear the gospel and receive it and change their heart, all this other stuff. Yeah, so I think that that is the proper response to the fears that we could have of authoritarianism, totalitarianism, uh, decisions by the UN, um, a lot of government intervention as social chaos brews, um, uh, over government overreach. I think that what Christians can do is the right response instead of growing in fear and, and huddling away. But, but rather, like you said, proclaiming, uh, proclaiming the gospel in word, but also in deed. Because the early church changed a totalitarian society where Rome controlled everything. And it was a small little group of Christians that showed radical hospitality instead of just trying to hold on to their own, but saying, you know what, we're just, we're just going to give it up. And, and we're just going to live the way that Jesus has called that God has called the spirit has led and that created social renewal. So I think that that is the right response rather than just Christians becoming politicized as an interest group. I, I see that happening. There's a few friends here and people coming into the church and they're being changed. Like mm. They've been marginalized everything from every walk of life and they come in and their lives are changed. Yeah. And it's nothing that we're doing. It's what God's doing. That's awesome. Lloyd, do you want to add to that? Yeah. Just uh, when you were talking earlier, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it reminded me of, um, oh, it was actually your last verse that you put up there. It reminded me of John the Baptist because then he's preaching, you know, like to, right to the person. Like it's not to the whole society. It's like the military person comes along. He's like, you, you need to, this is how justice is actually lived out in your life don't take from this, these people that you know you don't oppress them uh, with your tax code that hey you you need and, and then it made me think of colossians too because colossians at the end he's like okay wives you know your husbands and and uh, masters you know treat your slaves well and, and slaves you know work when you're being watched and when you're not being watched but it comes like three chapters after like here's who jesus is here's who you are in jesus it takes like three chapters of theology and doctrine and understanding god and yourself before you get to this is how life is lived out in justice and love and you know that's right yeah it's a wonderful point lloyd that paul's letters started with uh looking at what god who god is what god has done and then understanding who we are in that uh, and how our natures have been transformed before we had the practice. It goes back to what you said too earlier about how social justice starts at the fall and then- Critical, yeah, critical theory starts at the fall. Yeah. And we start at creation. Yeah, right. And that's where, and I think churches that start with sin is not presenting the full gospel. We have to start with very good creation, dignity of humanity. Uh, in order to know what restoration is. What is redemption? Mm -hmm. It's not just getting a golden ticket for heaven, 
but it's a call to be restored to who, who the creators made us to be and who he's leading us to be in the new creation. Um, so, so yeah. So as Christians, we can sometimes just want to jump and say, we just need to do something. Let's act and then think. But, but sometimes Christians have been too guilty of thinking and, and discoursing. And sometimes we just have to get into the mud and figure out on the way. But, uh, and so liberation uh, theologians or people influenced by liberation theology really said, you know, it's just about praxis. It's just about getting in. Uh, And sometimes you have to get dirty in order to do the right things. But that's different than what I'm saying, is that we, we should be mindful of how we act. We need to be prayerful together. We need to ask, is God leading us in this way? Is God providing for us in this way? Is this, has God called us to this particular need? Because I don't think that we're called to every need we see. Otherwise, we're too overwhelmed. We try to be Jesus himself. But if we reflect on God and say, okay, now I want to step in faith and trust that how we've been named by God, how we've been known by God, how we've been forgiven by God, moving out in faith of that, and then trusting that the Spirit will lead us. Jesus says that the Spirit, um, don't fear the magistrates, that the Spirit will speak to you when you stand before them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that I can be fearful of magistrates, but um, especially Canadian ones. (laughs) But uh, but I just want to say, you know what, you know, let the gospel be itself and uh, and trust God with that. Do you want to follow up? Yeah, just um, your title is Thy Kingdom Come, right? Yes. And so it's like, that's what a trans, that's what a Christian, that's like a born again Christian should be someone that's seeking God's kingdom. And I, I couldn't help thinking when that lady was speaking very emotionally. And there's a lot more, obviously, to her oppression than what she expresses. But what she did express, or what I heard her express, was the stuff was, she was prevented from getting stuff. I mean, that might have been very simplified, obviously, and I know there's more to it, obviously, than that. But that's what she was talking about, and and I'm like that's just like so. It's like the that's that's the um, the junk of the world, you know, like uh, compared to knowing freedom and Christ. Well, yes, I know, I know what I know. She's oppressed. Right, but then, right. But when she expresses it. Yeah, she's, but I think that she was just dealing with economics. What, what were the protests about? And, uh, and it wasn't just police brutality. It became about injustices that have been against Black people in America for 450 years. Yeah. And she wanted to name that and saying, and so there and needs, to, what's the, and why there was looting. She's explaining, yeah, so when it comes right. to the looting, I guess is what I meant. Is- right. And I guess that she was saying, let's not, uh, let's not give placebos to these people and judge their, you know, it's, it's like the, I think it's the proverb or a prayer. It says, don't let me be too rich to forget you, God. Don't let me do be too poor that I have to steal bread. And I think that she's kind of saying people have gotten so poor that they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And she was, uh, I don't think that she was trying to justify looting, but she was saying they're tired of your placebo 
your placebos because they're not doing anything. Pick yourself up by your bootstrap. You've burned it down. Pick yourself up by your bootstrap. You've killed us. Uh, Work really hard. Take our money. Um, uh, We do something wrong. Police come in and kill us. We can't even trust any authority. So it's just, I think that she says, I'm just tired of placebos. We need real action. And we've been, we've been pushed in a corner. Uh, I don't think that I did not hear her saying justifying looting um, or at least recommending because she did say, you know, you're lucky that we want equality, not revenge, because that's what it would look like. Revenge would look like if it was just staying. So that's probably why I feel that she she was saying, let's have some consideration why they would do that um, uh, rather than continue to give me your placebos. Right. Yeah. Anyone else? When uh, Martin and then Wendell. Bringing Herb Kimberly Jones's co- last comment into the Canadian context, mm. we can hear the um, indigenous leaders here saying, <laughs> we do not want revenge, which they've been so gracious about given all that's happened, but we do want something in the court as part of that. There's a Canadian flip to it as well, I think. Yeah, so in Canada, um, going off on what Kimberly Jones spoke so eloquently um, in that video that in the Canadian context, we can hear from First Nations leaders who say they're not looking for revenge. They've been very gracious in saying, we just want some equality and some material benefit. We've been really, we've been really held back. And that's true. I think Canadian Christians... Uh, need to really consider what does it mean to be just toward our neighbors uh, and there's some people there's christians on the island on the peninsula who are seeking that you know sometimes i can feel overwhelmed i'm saying oh what ne- which needs can i address and how can i address them uh, you know because there's four or five tribes on the peninsula here mm-hmm. and you see their economic and social oppression happen. I've heard it out of people's lips that I'm shocked. You know, one, one of the first person I met on the island said, I'm not a racist, but, and I don't need to say what else they said, but I'm like, okay, clearly that's racist. <laughs> uh, and it was all about First Nations. So yeah, we, we need to think about that, but we can be thankful that even though we can't meet all these things, that we see Christians being active in these ways. Um, even though there has been atrocities committed by the church with mass graves and uh, uh, forced reservation schools and, uh, and other atrocities and covering up some of that stuff. But there are Christians also who are contending for racial reconciliation and justice for First Nations. I know many Christians who are fighting for that. Um, and I know many evangelical Christians, I don't know if they would consider themselves evangelical, but if we define evangelical as uh, believing that the Bible is authoritative and transformative to our hearts and to society, then I know tons of people who are working with prostitutes or street workers, um, uh, working in the legal departments, in uh, uh, policing, proper policing, First Nations, racial divide, uh, on and on I could go, so but thanks for bringing that up.
Yeah. Um, <coughs> excuse me again. Um, it's personally listening to the questions and the comments. For me, it seems that the kind of synthesis of this discussion revolves around the notion of spirit and body. Um, what I mean by that is, for example, Marxism and capitalism. It seems to overemphasize the material. So they're essentially materialists. And it seems as if the flaw or the weakness in Christianity or like the Christianity that our children are rebelling against or have rebelled against or will rebel against is like a disembodied, hmm. desacramentalized notion of Christianity. Like we don't need to care about the earth. We don't need to care about creation, the body, stuff of the earth. <coughs> and so is there a way to bring together two? And I think you have been alluding to that. And I don't know if you want to further comment or maybe you already have. No, it's great. Just to yeah. say that uh, <coughs> what you've been hearing is uh, trying to contend with this soul body dualism that often shows up in traditional Christianity and what young evangelicals are rejecting as well. They want a more embodied spirituality uh, <coughs> that something that has, that does something with its hands, not just with its hearts. And that, yeah, you know, I, I looked up the definition of evangelicals, which is all over the map, but they say one of the, according to Wikipedia, uh, that the major tenet of evangelicalism <coughs> is uh, to be born again. And born-again Christianity is often um, commented on that it's all about the soul, saving souls, and caring very little about social ramifications or the environment. It's all going to burn anyway. The world is ruled by the devil. Therefore, we just need to grab hold of Jesus and wait until his judgment comes, and then we can be freed from all this. Uh, but the Bible, as you rightly say, and what we've been talking about and what I've been trying to promote, is that that internal regeneration to be born again means also to become a new creation, mm -hmm. which means that we are to be oriented toward the renewal of what God has made toward proper tending until, um, and, which but it's originally created. Good. But, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up because there is an article that I read um, that I quoted from James K. A. Smith called um, confessions of a Kyperian naturalist. Sounds terrible title. Great article. <laughs> Um, but he's saying that he grew up as a rapture ready Christian, uh, where he, he thought in that mind, I mean, that soul body dualism, and he just wanted to be freed from all this, but then his, his, his mind was renewed and reformed through reformed theology. And so reformed theology does not start with sin. It starts with creation and Labrie fits very firmly within that. Uh, and he realized, oh, I can pursue justice um, and renewal in all areas of life. But, but it gets, uh, but he says, and that was from Abraham Kuyper, so it's the Kuyperian, but then he says a naturalist. But, but what happened to him, he, said, he started becoming so concerned about renewal in society is that he forgot that God's kingdom was not something he establishes, but something that he needs to pray for. And so um, any comments about Charles Taylor, but he says that as Christians, we always need to remember that we're pursuing justice on earth, but praying that God's kingdom comes, that what we establish might 
might be included in God's kingdom, but it is not establishing God's kingdom. Only God establishes his kingdom. And he's established it through his son, Jesus, and ultimately when uh, he returns. Okay, well, that's in there. Uh, thanks for bearing with the long talk, but, uh, but now you're fully educated. <laughs>